Welcome back to the Arena Lab podcast, a show that explores the science and the people behind the Research and Innovation Network Austria, also known as RENA. This week, our guest is wildlife biologist and conservationist Claudia Walsh. Claudia is currently a research fellow with the City University of New York, a National Geographic explorer, and is associated with the American Museum of Natural History. Her resume alone sounds like an adventure, but in our conversation, we explore the fascinating world of scatological wildlife research. Yes, it means we are going to talk about poop science. We also dig into funding, research, and more. Let's jump into our conversation with Claudia Walsh. So, Claudia, will you tell me what you do now, your title now, and then we'll go back and talk about the inception of that? Um, so, I'm a research associate right now at the City University of New York, and I'm also affiliated with the American Museum of Natural History. Nice. I'm a conservation biologist. My work um, mainly focuses on um, threatened mammals, which are um, impacted by humans in environmental change. Okay, very interesting and intriguing. Before we jump into that, I'd love to know where that inception was. Where did you know that you want to start doing this type of research and work? Yeah, when I first, um, as a student back in Austria at the University of Graz, I started out um, studying all kinds of um, different taxa. Um, a lot of invertebrates, and I was always fascinated by nature. But then I um, I got the great opportunity to go um, and spend one year abroad. Um, I left Austria and I went to Montana. I was always fascinated by um, the landscapes there and the abundance of wildlife. Mm -hmm. So I joined um, the wildlife program there at the University of Montana in Missoula, and I got to do a lot of amazing things. We would go out to the field sometimes twice a week. We would do field trips to the Glacier National Park, um, Yellowstone National Park, and I would see a lot of wildlife in the wild, like even a grizzly bear. And um, that really changed my interest and perspective. And I think that probably was the turning point for me to start this kind of career. You were inspired at that point. I was really inspired. What was your age again? Um, back then I was about 24. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, okay. so you got your inspiration about 24 then to start pursuing that, something. Yeah, that, I think that year really changed my life. And then I I wanted to pursue that career. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know how I will do it because um, it was definitely challenging going back to Europe. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I am where I am now. So. You got back to Europe and started down that path. I finished my master, mm -hmm. and then I um, I wanted to do more international work, and I I took a leap, and I I left to Asia for I was there almost a year. Um, I worked for a local NGO in Thailand, okay. the Thai Society for Conservation of Wild Animals, and I um i did what what i was taught in montana to go out and survey for big carnivores um back then my focus was bears so in this two bear species in thailand they are very difficult to find because there are not many 
of them in the wild. The species are um, Asiatic black bears and Malayan sun bears. And for this specific NGO, we worked in an area close to the Cambodian border and we wanted to see if the animals are still there because the, although it was protected, uh, that specific national park, the landscape was degrading So and people didn't know how the wildlife was doing. So I, um, uh, we used like some um, powerful methods to go in the forest and see if the animals are still there. We didn't want it to, to disturb them mm -hmm. or capture them. So we used, um, we call it non-invasive survey methods. Okay. So we would put up camera traps. I don't know if you, um, have you heard of them? They're like remotely triggered. I have, but the audience has. I'm from Texas. We do that yes, for deer course, and other things, yeah. but the audience may not. Yeah. So they are, they're actually remotely triggered. They have a detection sensor. Mm -hmm. And some of them also need like a temperature difference anyway. So we, when we set them up in the forest, um, we get beautiful images of various wildlife, not only the big carnivores, but also the prey, right. the deer, mm -hmm. other things, what they may eat. So we get a sense of what's out there without being really there, right. disturbing nature and um, the protected area itself. Um, so that, that worked out really well. And... We started seeing what was in the forest and I, um, that was my first, I would say, experience in the tropics and I fell in love with the diversity and I, I wanted to continue that work. And after Thailand, I joined one of my colleagues from the University of Montana. He, he actually, um, he did his PhD at, um, in Malaysia, in Sava, uh, in Borneo. And he worked on sun bears too, but also birded peaks. That's like a, symp a sympatric um, peak, a sympatric meaning. They they eat the same thing. So as an ecologist, we want to study both of these species and see how they are doing uh, in that habitat. So I joined him in the Danum Conservation Area in Borneo, which is a fascinating um, protected area. And it's unfortunately surrounded by a lot of oil palm plantations. So when you fly in there, you see oil palm plantations pretty much everywhere. But then there's some wild protected forest, forest still left. And uh, it was so important for me to see that. And it was probably one of the most stunning areas I've ever been. Mm. Um, we saw orangutans and I saw other all, all kinds of wildlife just being there for a couple of months. And, it really uh, motivated me to do this work, uh, to continue this work because I saw there's so much out there, but there's at the same time, the wildlife and biodiversity is really very threatened. Mm -hmm. So we need to not only go and study them, but also do more applied things to help them to conserve what's still left. And it's just dwindling right now. Um, so yeah, so that's, I would say that's how I got into the field. and. That's my main motivation to do this work. Yeah. Still inspires you every day? I would say so, yeah. It's not easy to do what I do. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of funding, especially for the international work. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of bad news every day. We lose tigers on a daily basis. Yeah. It's got to be emotional, I would think. It's emotional, and it's, um, but at the same time, it just drives you even further, and you just know it's. we need to do this work, and with limited resources, but yeah. And then also to, I think most importantly, encourage and, and train the next generation. That's also one of my motivations, not only do the work myself, but also um, spread the passion 
and train um, more young scientists to do Mentors this work. and whatnot. Yes. My daughter wants to be a veterinarian because she loves animals, and she's always wanting to know how do I, how do I contribute. I mean, from the time she was. I can remember mm-hmm. she's always had a fascination with all kinds of animals. So I'm really anxious to like share this with her yeah. because kids do need mentors. They do need to find out what the paths they can go because they have questions. They're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get there. Um, so it's fascinating how you do that. How did you fund your your way? Does, is that something that, that uh, we talked about funding a second mm-hmm. ago, which is one thing is you funding your education, but then there's... Mm-hmm. Appears to me that the work itself also needs funding. Yeah, so that that's a very good question. And when I first started my PhD um, in the states here at uh, Virginia Tech, my my PhD was actually, especially my field work, was not funded. Um, we started out um, with the plan to do a, um, a countrywide survey on jaguars, actually in Belize, Central America, and we wanted to do something very new. We wanted to see how Jaguars are doing across the country, um, looking at their DNA and uh, also setting up camera traps. But the main focus was the genetic work. And so it was back then, talking about 2006, 2007, it was very cutting edge. And because in order to get DNA in the past, we had to capture animals and handle them. Uh, It's not easy to do that with jaguars. And in order to study this kind of animal across the country, we would need like, we would need to get data on many animals, many individuals. So we we um, we took a leap, and my advisor Marcella Kelly, who's an expert in jaguars, mainly camera trapping, she was like, "Let's use this new method." And um, it just came out, but it hasn't really been used in the tropics. So we um, we wanted to use another DNA source, which is not as um, back then was not uh, as established and talking about fecal samples. Mm -hmm. So we decided to um, do a genetic study based on Jaguar fecal samples. And and I don't know if you have been to Belize, to this kind of forest habitat. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful, but it's also very thick and lush. And there's, when you go out, there are a lot of leaves on the ground. So it's it's not an easy area to work. So even when you actually want to find fecal samples on trails where the cats walk, um, you would still have a very hard time to do that as a human. So we decided to get some help and um, we started using uh, sniffer dogs. And uh, so those dogs were, they were formally trained to uh, detect drugs and bombs. Mm -hmm. And now for our project, we trained them on... um, cat's cat or we call scat fecal samples and uh, we wanted to do this study on jaguars but since there are also there were there are four other scat species so we wanted to see how is this uh, cat uh, community doing so there's mountain lions um, jaguarandis margis ocelot in the jaguar so we trained the dog on all five cat species the fecal samples and and that was the main objective to do this work and to get the funding was very challenging because back then nobody has really done it. Plus, um, people told me, oh, it's in the tropics, it's going to be hot, the dogs are going to be overheating. And then when you find fecal samples in this kind of habitat, and especially the climate, hot and humid, is basically the worst DNA you would get. Really? Yeah, because hot uh, heat and humidity degrades DNA. And then plus we are talking about 
we're not taking blood samples, we're taking fecal samples. So whatever we collect, it's already really degraded. So there were a lot of challenges and based on that challenges, we had a hard time to get funding. But we got it off the ground. We had a successful pilot season. And after that, um, yeah, it was easier to get funds, but I had to do a lot of grant writing. And I think that was very challenging. And um, it was definitely not a PhD um, where I came in and everything was funded. Right. Yeah, so it was... was you, were, you were trailblazing. I was, in yeah, poop I had to. science. Yes. I like, I like that. Yeah, that poop science. I never thought I, I um, would do uh, poop science, <laughs> but now I'm a very big advocate. You own it. You, you're yes. trailblazer. That's and awesome. I think a lot of people are using this method now. And also by using the dogs, it was just a wonderful experience. It was very hard work. But um, we got a lot of data, and I think um, we know a lot of more, a lot more about jaguars at this point. So, so what can you tell us about jaguars now, other than? So we know now um, for the areas where we worked in how many cats are there, because mm -hmm. we can, when we extract the DNA from fecal samples, we we actually get um, we get DNA of the host, okay. the predator, because it comes from sloughed off um, cells from the intestines. Yeah. intestinal system. But then we can also learn over the last few years, I targeted different DNA in the fecal samples. So when we do extractions, we can also um, look at the DNA of the prey, what they eat. So that, that's really important too for large predators because they, they have, they're at, on the top of the food chain. So we really need to monitor what they eat in different areas because um, some they need certain prey, and if the prey is not there anymore, the populations may be more threatened. Um, so it's we can learn a lot from poop. And then recently I started looking at microbial DNA, which is also present in uh, poop samples, and, and that gives us some indication what's going on in the gut. So I don't know if you heard of microbiome research and that's like it's it's a very new frontier for humans now we um we know a lot about our microbiome so when we look at when you look at our at your body we actually have um a large portion of the cells in us and on us they're microbial mm -hmm. and so it's um now over the last 10 10 years uh especially in human studies we found out that um Bacteria, they're not on, only pathogens. We have a lot of commensal bacteria, good bacteria, and they help us to, especially in the gut, help us to digest food, help us to synthesize other nutrients, vitamins. But they're also responsible for some diseases, like they could show that certain microbes are present when you have cancer or um, when you're autistic. So it's... Microbes have a lot of function and functions, and we are just at the beginning to learn and understand what they can do. And I'm trying to use this new method now to and apply um, also for wildlife because in wild populations we know there's a lot of bacteria that are too similar to humans, but they're really understudied. So and um, since a lot of these big carnivores and also smaller ones. They're facing so many threats right now, so we really need to understand their biology thoroughly. And at this point now, we know that their biology is driven by not only the cat themselves, also by microbes living in and on them. So 
so yeah, so poop allows us to study that too. And um, yeah, so I'm a big advocate of poop science and yeah. I'll continue using um, this um, sample source, a biological sample. Yeah, it gives us a lot of information. How else would you test for those microbial uh, things um, in humans and also in cats? Is it other than poop? Is it, I mean, does a, going back to a human, <laughs> does any of the traditional you know, scanners, obviously x-rays wouldn't do it. Yeah, you know, so that's a good question. So um, historically we cultured bacteria, but some of the bacteria you cannot really culture. So now um, this is possible to do, this research is possible because we had a, um, a huge advancement in technology. So over the last, it's now 15 years, basically, we have this new type of sequencer, they're called next generation sequencers where we can um, generate millions of DNA reads in one sequencing run and we can put a lot of samples into, um, we pull them together and then we generate millions of DNA reads. And this allows us now to really um, examine complex samples like microbiome samples, for example, a gut can have anywhere between 500 to 1000 different microbial species so we need to have, yeah, we need to have this kind of technology to really see what's there. In terms of how, you asked me how we would, what other alternatives there are to sampling. For humans now, I mainly talked about gut microbiome, but of course there's many other environments on our body. Yeah. So we um, we can study um, different, uh, like different sites, for example, the armpit has very unique um microbial community compared to the gut or compared to the mouth. So in order to really understand our microbiome, we need to really take swab samples from various sites. And right. um, so that's how we would do it for humans. For animals, that's more difficult. And um, we have been now collaborating with some researchers who are capturing animals. Mm -hmm. So we get swab samples from different um, areas of their body. species and um, different sites, uh, different body sites. Because for many of them, we they have never been studied before. And it's fascinating because we seem to find a lot of new biodiversity. I have a question about funding. Is, uh, mm -hmm. As we were talking earlier, I'm an entrepreneur, founder, yes. and I'm always problem solving in my own way. One of the things that both in startups and what I'm hearing here is funding's an issue. Mm -hmm. It's a big issue, yeah. And so I'm trying to solve that somehow. And by asking questions, mm -hmm. right, how it's done. If a person like yourself is trying to do funding, you said mention grant writing. Mm -hmm. Is there a directory that you go through and say, I'm going to write all these grants? Or is there other things like crowdsourcing, for example? That's very popular um, in, in, in funding a business. Is there things like that that people can do to help okay. the cause? Yeah, so um, I would say crowdfunding can be done, but it's more difficult. I generally... There's certain grants you can apply for. Um, there are some directories you can look up um, different zoo grants or um, some NGOs would have grant programs for graduate students or um, there's different uh, organizations. So they, I would say there's a wealth of knowledge out there. It can be very confusing yeah. when you first start with this work. So um, I was fortunate when I was in graduate school, my advisor, she guided me. And we would look for grants together. Right. Uh, and now I would say, after all this time, there's new ways to do this. And I would say I really want to highlight Twitter 
um, the Twitter community. Well, so I'm a big fan media. of social media where we, um, especially in this field, we have very strong science community where um, people share their experience with grant writing, help each other, but also uh, organizations would post um, grant submission deadlines. So I think it's there's new new ways now to find out about these kind of um, resources. And it's, I told you before, it's very complex. There's a lot of sources and things change yeah. sometimes every year. People run out of funding and then this grant is offered this year, but then it may not. So it's so it's really good. Social media is very powerful in that way to kind of keep on top of things because, right. yeah, there's a lot there's a lot out there, but sometimes you just don't know. So Yeah, it's, it seems like it's disconnected. I mean, that's an area that, and it's not just in this community. I, I see it in other areas too. There's this the organization of information. Mm -hmm. Even though we have access to the internet and Twitter and social media, mm -hmm. um, how do you reach all the people that are interested? And it seems like there's not this one directory that says, here's all the places that are willing to do grants and, you know, go in, and here's mm -hmm. a single form that you can just hit a button and everything is yes. done. And there's this other thing to crowdsource because there's a lot of public. I, I would imagine that in the audience, we're going to have people that, I, ooh, I want to contribute. How do I help? And it's equally as important to give them the tools to know where to go mm -hmm. to be able to help. It seems like there's this, and I may be wrong, but this is what that seems to me is like there's a disconnect there. There's a disconnect, and I think some people, they compile sources for fundings, and but things just change quickly. So it's really, it's really difficult to stay on top. And yeah, and I think social media is one good way to it's do been it. Helping and a lot, yeah. has, has been helping a lot, yeah. Yeah, interesting. So tell me what it's like to work for the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Um, it's a fascinating place. There's a lot of resources, a lot of great minds at the same place. It's a hub in the city for science and natural resource conservation management. We get a lot of people from all over the world visiting. So since I've been there, I've met so many different people from uh, different places studying all kinds of things. So it's, it's a, it's, and then plus we have um, huge collections. So you can find pretty much anything you want. Um, we also have uh, great initiatives for education. So that has been very inspiring for me. We not only do the research there, but we we do a lot of um, outreach and we work with students a lot. I've been part of, a, I just want to highlight one program which I've been part of the last several years already. It's the um, Science Research Mentoring Program. Uh, it's, a, it's a program where the museum invites high school students. Nice. And we have about 60 high school students every year join mm -hmm. the museum and they get paired to students always get paired with one museum researcher and they stay with us from September all, the, all um, almost a year until June and they work with the scientists on research projects and um, and it's all about mentoring what we discussed before so it's 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 a very powerful way to for these young people to do their first uh, get exposed for the first time to science and um, be a researcher mm -hmm. um, at a very early age. So, yeah, so there's many, yeah, many really good things about the museum. and But, yeah, education is is very important and um, has really had a big impact on me too as a mentor. And I I hope to 
continue similar work wherever I go next. Yeah. Yeah. So this this program of mentorship for the high school kids is mm -hmm. that I would imagine it's a local program because it's, it's a local they work program. with you on a on yeah. a on a one on one basis or yeah they are all um, they are all based in New York City okay. and we have it's very diverse mm -hmm. we have a lot of minority students. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of female students too, so there's, it's very diverse and um, the kids are very smart. Um, they they have been, like the microbiome research I just explained to you before, mm -hmm. my students are working with me on this kind of very complex genomic data and wow. they're doing this at an age of 17 and wow. they get to do their own research project and we have a symposium at the end of the year yeah. where they present a poster and give a, a talk mm -hmm. and yeah and then many of them go on to college and um yeah continue a similar path yeah. so it has been a great experience to work in the museum for many reasons yeah what is the most fascinating thing you've seen out in the jungle when you're doing your work um that's that's a good question i i've seen a lot of things i would say probably the most fascinating thing was um in 2010, I, I was fortunate to to join this um, a filming expedition actually with BBC. I got this call one day. Um, they invited me and my detector dog Bruiser to join um, a filming expedition to Bhutan, um, which is this small kingdom in the Himalayas. And the main goal was to study tigers and other big cats and. Uh, Bruiser, my dog Bruiser and I were invited to help the camera team find these big cats out in the uh, tropical part of Bhutan, which is um, the south, Royal Manas National Park. So I joined the team and um, we spent many days out in the field. And uh, one day we would actually, across the river, we would see uh, an Asi Asiatic black bear female with her cub climbing up a hillside. and. Well. It was probably one of the fascinated, fascinating things I've ever seen because this usually don't get to see in the wild. And uh, it was just this stunning area where we had large diversity of animals. And yeah, and we just came across this site and yeah, it still stays with me a lot, um, all the time. That's amazing. I really, I was in my mind, I was kind of lost because I was thinking, I was just yeah, imagining, was... imagining what you had seen. Um, okay, impact. At the end of the day, mm -hmm. um, I'm hearing the work that you're doing and the science and, and the learning that you've done with with these uh, animals. Um, but one of the impacts that humans has have in in this, how do you um, how do you educate the public, or, or what do you want to see change, or what impact do you have? Humans have a lot of impact on wildlife. There's a, a lot of things we can do. Um, I think most importantly is for us as a um, wildlife biologist, we work with local communities living at the doorstep of the protected areas where large carnivores live. And we try to educate them. There's a lot of conflict in some of those areas because um, the large predators may occasionally take, take out livestock. So I think going in, working with those large com um, with these local communities and show them how to keep the livestock safe um, 
on a daily basis really helps to um, mitigate the issue. So I think working with local communities is really important. Recently, we also started um, a project in New York City, or the project has been going on for many years already, but I joined them. It's the Gotham Coyote City, um, New York City uh, Research Project, where we, um, there are coyotes in New York, mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't know it. So um, we also do a lot of outreach with the public, and we just tell them, don't be afraid of coyotes. Um, they are not going to come and get you. And I think that really helps too. So it's, I think it's a, it's a lot about educating people and then um, people who live close to these predators. At the same time, I think also training the next generation right. of scientists who will go out and do more work. A lot of work needs to be done and um, it's probably not going to be, it's not going to get better and it's not going to get easier with um, all the challenges we are facing right now. I'm talking about climate change and um, forest um, disappearing at an alarming rate. So, yeah, so I would say that's probably the, the biggest impact we we have is to work with people who live close to these predators, but also to um, train the next generation of scientists. Having said that, you're, what would you say to the audience, the, the people in the audience, the the, the kids in the audience mm -hmm. that want to listen or even parents that have kids like myself, mm -hmm. what would you say, uh, what advice would you give them if they want to pursue something like what you're doing? I think um, I, I probably recommend um, kids to get involved in local research projects, try to get um, their organizations, maybe in your local towns, there may be a museum. There are a lot of opportunities out there. You just need to go and look. Um, universities sometimes have also um, um, outreach events. So I think just get involved with these things and go out and do it. And I think you'll just get captivated. I just always I remember my high school students. They all uh, grew up in New York City. Many of them haven't been outside in, in the forest a lot. So um, yeah, they get captivated just by listening to the stories I tell them. And I and I think the more you do, the more you get exposed. Um, it helps you to um, to find out what you want to do. But then also, hopefully, you'll get involved in this kind of work and, and decide to continue uh, being a scientist or um, even work with threat and wildlife, which there's a lot of, lots of things need to get done. So Yeah, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, what I hear you say is that Go try things and see what your heart tells you. Yes. Because back to your experience, it was that one year when you were 24 when your life changed because yes. you were inspired to do something. And ever since then, you, it gives you that reason to go get up every morning and go do something, find that cause. Yeah. And so for kids and, and, and the parents that are listening out there as well and, you know, that want to have an impact is expose them to the museum. See, that's interesting because in my limited knowledge of museums I think is a place you go to and, and see things that have happened in the past. I don't think about uh, that this is also a center where you can go actively do something now, other than maybe donate some money or whatnot, but you're saying actually you'll see what programs they offer and be involved uh, there. So that's... Yes, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of opportunities and 
I think it's not only museums, also other organizations. I think it's all about going out there and see what's there. And then it's also, I think, again, I come back to social media where I think it's about trying to find out what's out there. And maybe we all need to do a better job just reaching out more to the public so it's um, even more well known that there are all these resources and kids can go and do. And and I think that's basic. That's always I tell my students, go and do and try go and go and do things, because even when you're a biology student and undergraduate student, you still don't know what you want to do. So tell them, go and do internships and um, help with work in different research groups. And then I think it will help you to decide what to do, because you really don't know. You're young and um, yeah, so it's all about getting exposed and going to things. That was such a beautiful message because I think, um, and I'm again, I'm speaking from the heart here because I've got a 15-year-old that's yes. having to go through these things and seeing her struggles and trying to figure things out and the pressure that she's thinking about on a daily basis. One week she wants to do one thing, the next week she wants to do another. And quite frankly, in social media that's out there, pop culture does a great thing, mm-hmm. way of exposing yes. all the things that don't matter and keeps... Uh, attention of teenagers and I think there should be a lot more of what you're saying. I'm glad that social media is being, is, is being helpful in raising awareness but we need to do a better job of that so that kids can start having planted that seed of maybe I want to do this and and how do I what's the next step? Because I think it's that what's the next step question mark that kids have mm-hmm. and so I, I find this very very fascinating Thank you so much for being with us. I really have enjoyed this show and learned so, so much. And I will follow you on social media and keep spreading the word. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a really great experience. What an inspiring and fascinating conversation. Claudia is doing such interesting work. And if you'd like to follow her along on her research, you can find her on Twitter at Claudia Walsh. We will put a link in the show notes. Thank you again, Claudia, and best of luck on all your endeavors. The Arena Lab podcast team includes me, Dan Dillard, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Special thanks to our friend Robin Tim Weiss and the amazing team at the Research and Innovation Network Austria. If you like this episode, make sure you leave us a review on iTunes so other science, research, and innovation fans can find us. Thank you for listening.